Well, if you have your Bibles with you there, if you want to turn uh, to Mark chapter 6, sermon text is Mark 6, verses 7 through 13, and I'll ask it to stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark 6, 7 through 13, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Mark writes, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands stands forever. Let's, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his holy word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us in your scriptures, that we might know you rightly and that we might know the way of salvation through faith in Christ and the way that you would have us as your redeemed people to live. We ask that you would work in us by your spirit this morning, give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things from your word, for it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us through our study in Mark, or if you're just familiar with the book in general from your own, your own reading and study, you might know that back in the first chapter of, of the Gospel of Mark, uh, early on in the Gospel of Mark, when he was calling some of the disciples to himself to follow him, uh, he called Simon and Andrew in particular, uh, they were fishermen, and he called them to leave their nets behind and follow him, and what did he say would happen when they followed him? What did he say he would make them to become? Fishers of men, right. If they said, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And so far up to this point in Mark's gospel, we've seen the first half of that. We've seen, we've seen them following Jesus, literally following him. Wherever he went, uh, they, they followed after him. Uh, and I don't think it's any coincidence that in, it's in Nazareth in Jesus' hometown, in the verses just prior to this passage, where he suffered rejection from his own hometown, Jesus did in the first six verses of this chapter, that Mark makes sure to point out to us who was with him. It says in verse 1 that his disciples followed him there too. So when he went to Nazareth and was rejected by his own hometown, the disciples were there to see it. They were there uh, to see it firsthand. They, they really got to see everything, didn't they, that we've seen so far in the book, pretty much. They got to see the crowds thronging after Christ. We got to see, they got to see the opposition to Christ and his message. They got to see the miracles, the conversions, and the rejection as well. They saw all of it. And he had them there to see all of it for a reason. And he puts it in his word for us to see it for a reason as well, in those previous six verses of Mark's gospel in chapter 6, we saw that when Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, he, he responded by kind of a proverbial saying, didn't he? He says, he says to them in verse uh, 4, A prophet is not without honor 
except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. It's like the closer you get to him relationally, the, the less honor he has in some ways. And Mark even goes on to say in verse 6 that Jesus, you know, they were, it says they were astonished at his teaching. And what does it say about his response to their unbelief? He marveled. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. It's, it's kind of, you could say, he couldn't believe their unbelief. He couldn't believe that of all the places in the world that we reject him, that Nazareth, of all places, the people who saw him on a daily basis for his whole life, practically, would, would reject him. Well, here in our text, we see Jesus starting to send out the twelve, the apostles, and it says two by two. Maybe if you're, if you're like me, when you read two by two, you started thinking of a little song about Noah's Ark. You know, he sent them out by twosies, right? Not by onesies. Um, they weren't ready when they were in their onesies, right? Um, you might note that the word, the word apostle in the original Greek of the New Testament, uh, it's a word that really just means someone who sent, a sent one. Well, here he's sending the ones he was calling to send. The, the title apostle actually implies the work, the task that they were sent to do. They were sent out by Jesus to be his ordained representatives, kind of like an ambassador. They, they represented their master, Jesus Christ. Well, here in, in, in Mark chapter 6, for the first time we see Jesus starting to send them out to do what he called them to do in the first place. Now we're, we're seeing the reason for the following. What, what he was preparing them to do by having them follow him in the first place, to be fishers of men. All that following was to prepare them for following and fishing uh, for men. Following begets fishing. That's the whole point. That's the point of discipleship. Discipleship should lead in some way, not that everybody is an evangelist or anything, but discipleship should in some way lead to the furthering of the cause of making disciples. That's, that's kind of the point. And what, what were they sent to do? It says he sent them out two by two, but what did he send them to do? They were sent to do what they had seen Jesus do. They were sent to do what they saw and learned Jesus doing uh, while they were following him. The reason they followed him was that they might watch and learn both what he said and what he did. To follow him was to watch and learn. That's still the case. We don't follow him physically. We don't follow him traveling. But we are to follow him in a way that we watch and learn as well. To follow him for the disciples was to be prepared to be used by him in some way, shape, or form in the task of making disciples of all the nations. That's still true. We follow Christ. If you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ. If you're not a follower of Christ, I've said it before, you're a lot of things, but a Christian's not one of them. Sad to say. But that's, that's part of what the task is. You follow him that we might learn to fish, to go fishing, and to make disciples. So he, what does he do? He gives them the authority, his authority, over unclean spirits, verse 7 says. Verse 13 says that they, they really did. It says they cast out many demons. So the authority is, is explained in the end of the passage, what they did. They also healed many who were sick. If you've read the first five chapters, what do you see Jesus doing all over the place? Casting out demons, healing many people, and preaching repentance. That's the third thing that they end up doing. They preached a message, verse 12 says, of repentance. So it should be clear by now from the first five chapters or so 
uh, that what he sends them forth to do and to teach is basically the very same things that he himself had been doing and teaching. They're, they're, forgive the, the illustration, but they're kind of mini-me's. He wants them to go do what he was doing and teach the things that he was teaching up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. And I think it's, it's not without reason that he does all of this initially sending in the context of his own rejection in his hometown of Nazareth. I think it's significant that that's the context in which he sends them out. It's as if the disciples, he didn't want them to somehow mistakenly think that they should expect a hero's welcome everywhere they went. Now, they should have been able to expect that, if not for sin, if not for depravity. We, they had the best message anyone ever heard from the best Lord anyone could ever, could ever know, but they weren't to expect a hero's welcome wherever they went. Jesus didn't get that welcome in his own hometown, and so that's, they should take notice of that. So he took them along to Nazareth in verse 1 so they could see firsthand themselves with their own eyes their master being rejected by some who, of all people, had every reason to accept him. And then what does he do? Jesus kind of connects the dots for them in our passage, doesn't he? He tells them of the distinct possibility, in fact, the probability, really, of their own rejection in some places. It brings to mind the words of Christ in John chapter 13, verse 16. It says, truly, truly, Christ says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is what? Is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. We should not expect to be treated better than Jesus was. He even goes so far as to tell them what they should do if and when any place refuses to accept them and their message, doesn't he? In that case, and again, it wasn't to be thought of as a mere hypothetical. He's not saying to them, hey, this will never ever happen, but just in case that one in a million chance something happens, here's what you should do. But, you know, you probably don't even need to remember it because it's never going to happen. No, he, he tells them to do what? To shake the dust of, the, of that town off the bottom of their feet or off the bottom of those sandals that they had, had along. Shake the very dust of the town. It's not even worthy to be on the bottom of their shoes. It's kind of the picture. It's like you don't want to be contaminated by that town because of the judgment of God that was going to be coming upon it. It says, shake the dust of that town off their feet, what? As a testimony against them. So basically, bear testimony of Christ, and if they reject it, there's another testimony, and it's the shaking of the dust off the feet for those who rejected him and wouldn't receive his appointed messengers. Well, there's a number of things that we can learn from our text uh, about, about the work of, of the church in serving Christ and making disciples of all the nations. And the first thing I think we need to see in our text is Christ's method for ministry, his method of ministry. In other words, the way that he has ordered and ordained the work of the gospel to proceed, the way it's to be done. You know, before we jump into the details of that, and they're, they're not exhaustive in our text by any stretch of the imagination, it might be best to point out, you know, to stop and point out, remind ourselves that, that Christ the Lord has given us a lot of specific instructions in his word regarding how we're to go about the work of ministry. He doesn't just say, go make disciples, good luck figuring it out. You know, I'm sure you'll figure something out great. Um, I don't care how you do it, just get it done. Jesus never said those words. 
Do it however you want to do it. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. You'll figure it out on your own. He has not left us to our own imaginations as to how we're to do the work of his work of ministry. And I think that fact has somehow escaped the notice of many today who have taken it upon themselves to serve in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes when you observe the activities that are pursued by various churches in the name of, of quote-unquote ministry, you know, one can't help but wonder if it's ever occurred to them in the first place to ask whether or not Jesus intended for his servants to do the work of, of the gospel in a particular way at all. You would think the Bible doesn't have any instructions on how we're to work and worship and witness. Many seem to behave in ministry, so-called, as if the ends justified the means, even in the ministry of the gospel. Well, I think it's important for you and I to be reminded that the Lord not only appoints the ends, he also appoints the means to those ends as well. He's the one that calls the shots. He's the one that tells us uh, how to go about his his work. It's not left up to us to figure it out or to decide or innovate in those things on our own. Where Christ, the Lord, his word has spoken, we should go there and no further. That should be the first thing to think about. As believers in, in Christ, you and I, when we approach anything in life, not just ministry, when we approach anything in life, whether it be public worship on the Lord's Day, as we're doing even right now, whether it be our marriages and families, the way that we approach our work, our approach to politics, our relationship to the civil or sometimes not so civil government, uh, especially the work of the gospel ministry, first and foremost, though, the very first question you and I should ask ourselves is, what has the Lord said about it in his word? What has he said in his word? That's where we should be starting from. We should look to the scriptures to see what God's revealed will is for us in whatever matter at hand we're dealing with. Now, to be sure, not everything here in our text this morning is meant to be taken as somehow explicitly programmatic for the work of, of ministry. Um, we are sent to make disciples, but you and I, none of us in this room, are ever going to be an apostle. We may be sent, so you could play with the word, I guess, a little bit there, but we're not apostles. We're not given the authority of apostles. We're not given the authority to cast out demons or to, to heal people. Um, the uniform for ministry for us today is not given in this text. Uh, you know, I'm not standing up here in a tunic, a staff, and sandals. If I were, you thought it would be a Christmas play or something. Um, you know, we're not to presume that here we're given the authority uh, over unclean spirits as they were. I don't think that's the point. I don't think we should presume to have the ability to heal the sick as they have been given the authority. But I think there's a lot that we should learn in our text about the method of ministry that Christ himself has ordained for his church. And I think that's what we should look at this morning. Notice the first thing that it, it pro you probably read right past it. It, it seems so obvious, but we don't, we don't stop to think about certain phrases that we see. And what is the first thing it says? Two by two in verse 7. Now that doesn't mean that every church should have two pastors, no more, no less. You know, you don't call the local church that's bigger than yours and say, how many pastors do you have on staff? Wrong! You know, you should have two. Can't you read? Look at Mark 6. You have one? Wrong! You know, they can say it right back, back to us. I don't think that's the point. But what does it teach us, right? It does teach us something, that gospel ministry is to be a team effort. 
should be a team effort. There should be no lone rangers in gospel ministry. And frankly, even the lone ranger had Tonto, didn't he? The lone ranger wasn't a lone ranger. So the, what, the proverbial one-man show is not the biblical model for gospel ministry. It just isn't. Um, it's not safe for the health of the church, and it's not safe for the health of the pastor either. It's not the right way to do things. J.C. Ryle makes the following observation in his book on the Gospel of Mark. He says, The fact that there is hardly a single case in the Acts, in the book of Acts, where we find Paul or any other apostle working entirely alone is another remarkable circumstance. It is difficult to avoid the conclusion that if the rule of going forth two and two had been more strictly observed, the missionary field would have yielded larger results than it has. Think about that. If anybody in the history of humanity, in God's dealings with men, was adequate for ministry by themselves, it would have been them, wouldn't it? Paul. Well, a lot of the book of Acts, maybe over half of it's about Paul, or about what God did through Paul. Paul always seemed to have someone with him, serving alongside of him. A lot of times he had more than one person with him. If you read through the book of Acts, he had Barnabas or Mark, the writer of this gospel, Silas, Timothy, other people as well, Epaphras and others. You know, if you read through Paul's letters, the, the opening greetings, the closing salutations, what does he often do? Paul, Silas, and so-and-so. Paul, Timothy, and, you know, he, he, he sends greetings of those, he lets people know of those with him, serving alongside him in the gospel. No one is meant to go it alone. No one. Uh, it's for this reason that churches are to have what we call a plurality of elders. That means more than one. More than one elder. To rule and oversee the work of the church. In our particular case, we have elders, but they're down the hill. Pray. I hope that you're praying uh, for the Lord's will and work in our life, in our church, to raise up local elders here uh, in, in the church. May God be pleased to do that uh, even now. Well, what else does Jesus tell the disciples as he sends them out? In verses 8 through 10, Mark says this. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. The first thing is, they weren't going, around, they weren't going down the street, were they? We don't know how far they were going. I don't know how far they were going. It doesn't really say. But it sounds like it must have been a good distance, enough where you would normally pack a bag. Now, this, this isn't a command for us when you go on a trip, don't pack anything, right? That's not the point. But he says not, not to pack things, not to bring along extra provision. You know, there's a few things we should learn from this. Does this not teach you and I that we must trust in God's provision for the work of ministry? If, if it means anything for him to say, don't pack anything, don't even take an extra jacket, basically. Don't pack an extra pair of sandals. Don't, don't take an extra, you know, another one of the Gospels says not even an extra staff or anything. Don't take any of that stuff. Just, just go. You know, don't take your time packing and, well, let me get ready. Let me just, it's, it's do it in haste. It's get up and go. Do what I told you to do and I'll take care of, of the rest. You know, does this not teach us that God will provide for the work of his ministry through the very people to whom God sends his ministers? 
whether that be the local church or the foreign mission field. That's how God does it. That's how he's always done it. That's how it works. That's how God has ordained it to work all through these years. Does it also not teach us to be content with God's provision through the church? That's more of a that's pastor preaching to himself more than, than preaching to you, I guess, in this case. But, you know, what does it not sound like? It doesn't sound like riches and prosperity should be expected, does it? And so if a pastor or pastors of some kind seem to be fixated on that kind of a thing, uh, they're not following the example the Lord sets and his commands to his apostles here. It's not without reason that one of the qualifications for being an elder or overseer, which is also a pastor, is that a man not be, quote, a lover of money. 1 Timothy 3, 3. 1 Peter 5, verse 2, Peter gives instructions to elders uh, and says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The flock you're assigned to. Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Of course, there's much more that can be said about the method of Christ's ministry. Uh, that we sh- and we need to look at not just this one passage, but all- the whole scripture to tell us, to inform us what he would have us to do. Uh, but for the time being, that will have to wait for a different sermon and a different Sunday. But at least from our text, these are some small things that we can, can and should, I think, learn from it. What about the message of Christ? What message were they told Uh, Did they learn, really, from watching Christ? Did they bring? Did they preach? What message were those two by two sent out to do and to preach? Mark sums it up very shortly and succinctly in verse 12. He says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should what? Repent. Now, that's a a Reader's Digest uh, summary, if there ever was one. There's more to it than that. but if anything else, it tells you that, that the basic message they preached involved repentance. It was a highlight. Mark wouldn't have put it this way if it wasn't a major part, maybe the major part of their preaching. They preached repentance. And where did they learn to preach repentance? From Jesus himself. What did Jesus say in, back in Mark verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, The scripture says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Mark Mark generally, so far in the book, he doesn't tell us much of what Jesus says. He's focused on action. He doesn't give us long, very many long, extended, you know, quotes of Christ's teaching. But he does this one. He says, here's what Jesus preached, and sums it up basically in a couple verses. He proclaimed or preached the gospel of God, and what did that gospel of God include and involve? Repent and believe the gospel. So the gospel, the biblical gospel, includes a call upon people to repent and believe. It must. Without those two things, we have something other than the biblical gospel that Christ preached and ordained. Jesus preached repentance and faith, and so his disciples preached repentance and faith. Those today who would preach in the name of Jesus Christ must also then preach the message of Christ. And so that means it must include the call to repentance 
and faith. If we, to whatever extent that we in the ministry fail to preach repentance and faith in Christ, we are failing to preach the message of Christ at all. And so we're found to be false messengers. To fail to do that is to show that we really haven't been sent by him in the first place, isn't it? If you're truly sent by Christ to preach his word, you're going to preach the message that he has given and not something of your own imagination. Uh, I'll say this, beware of pastors and churches where repentance is nowhere to be found in their preaching and teaching. If you can sit under the preaching of the word for any length of time and you never hear a call to repentance of something, of some kind, and especially of repentance and faith in Christ, uh, you should not be there, or that pastor should not be there. What, what is repentance? It's easy to say, preach repentance and leave it at that. What, is, what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to preach repentance? What is repentance? It's turning from sin to God. That's a, a, just a thumbnail definition. Turning from sin to God. It's turning from sin and unbelief and turning to Christ by faith. Simple as that. Not easy, but simple, right? 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul, Paul describes the repentance and faith of the believers in Thessalonica this way. He, he describes it as them having, quote, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Turned from sin, I'm sorry, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So what did they do? What did, what did repentance look like in their case? They turned from idolatry and unbelief and turn to God. They turn from false religion to serve the one true and living God. They turn from being slaves to sin to serving whom? God. That's repentance. It's as simple as that. So I have to ask this morning, uh, not wanting to presume anything, but have you repented? Have you re- does, that, does that thing I just read, the, that description of repentance, does that describe you, not perfectly, not, that doesn't describe anybody here perfectly, not me or any of you, but does that, is that, does that describe you? Have you repented, turned from sin and unbelief to God through faith in, in Christ? Have you turned from your sin and unbelief and turned to Jesus Christ by faith? The Bible calls on every single one of us to do exactly that. Ezekiel 18.23, it says this, God says, have I any pleasure... Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should what? Turn from his way and live. Repentance. Turn from his way and live. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He says it at least twice in the book of Ezekiel. And what does it really say? It says God, you'd have to read it this way, God takes pleasure when people turn from their way and live. That's, what, that's what's implied by that, by that text. So the Bible tells us, turn from your way and live. Turn to Christ and have life in his name. Well, the last thing I think we see in our text is the reception of Christ. The reception of Christ. Jesus tells us that not only that, he doesn't just tell us the method. He doesn't just tell us the message of gospel ministry. But he also tells us what we can expect in the way of how we might be received. Now, we don't want to be too negative here. He, he clearly implies that some will receive the word of God gladly. He tells them, you know, when you go to a place and enter a house, stay there. Someone's going to welcome you. There will be people that will hear and repent 
and believe and welcome both the message and the messenger of the gospel together. But look in verse 11. It says, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, what's, what's the implication there? Not if. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So what he's saying is some people will hear the good news of the gospel of Christ, the best news that they will ever, ever hear, and, quote, not listen. And I don't think any of us are shocked by that. We've all known that to be the case. They will reject both the message and the messengers alike. What does it say? If any place will not receive you and will not listen to you. It's message and messenger both. You know the old saying, it's not personal? It's always personal. It can't help but be personal. The true messenger embodies the message. And the wicked reject both. So Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised if and when this happens. It's going to happen. It's not always going to happen, thankfully, but it does happen. And again, the timing and placement of this account, this sending of the apostles, I don't think it's an accident. Remember, what did they just get done seeing in the first six verses? They saw Jesus' own hometown saying, no thanks. You know, who who does this guy think he is? This carpenter. This one, where did he get this wisdom? You know, where did he get this power to perform, you know, great, great works? Um, isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this, you know, they start naming off his whole family, but won't use his name. They won't even say his name. They loathed him. This wasn't just, you know, you talk to somebody sometimes and they just don't get it. This isn't that. This is get out of here. You know, go, you can't, you can't stay here anymore. This isn't your home. Who do you think you are to tell us, I knew you when you were this big? How can you possibly be the Messiah, right? A prophet is not without honor except in his home town. And what's, what about the passage that follows this one? It's like Jesus, Mark bookends, and Jesus really bookends, the sending of the disciples by two things to tell them, to temper their expectations in some way. One, Jesus' own rejection, and two, the story of John the Baptist's murder at the hands of, of Herod. That's, that's the passage we're going to look at, Lord willing, next, next week. What was John the Baptist's crime? Surely he must have done something awful to be beheaded by King Herod, right? He told King Herod to repent, didn't he? doesn't use the word, but it's the same exact thing. He told the king. doesn't matter who the person was. John had the same message. Repent and believe. And frankly, John, what did they say? John meddled. John got specific. He didn't just leave it kind of in the, you know, in the ether and say, hey, repent of whatever, king. It says that, that he told Herod to repent. And what did he tell him to repent of? Herod had taken his brother's wife, Herodias. And John made it a habit. Uh, it wasn't a one-time thing, apparently, from the, from the, the, uh, from the text. John made it a habit of telling him that it was, quote, in verse 18, it was not lawful for him to do so. He's saying, hey, king, king, what you're doing is against, whose law was it against? Not King Herod's, God's law. He told the king, you're not really the king. There's a king of kings, and you're breaking his law. And what happened? He threw him in jail. 
And he was afraid of him because the people looked to him as a prophet. We're going to see this next week. I won't preach it ahead of time. But what happened? He had him killed. The prophet of God made the word of God known even when it endangered his life. The call to repentance didn't get silenced even under threat of death. So remember the disciples' message was their master's message that people should repent, verse 12. Now think about that. As we see from that thing with King Herod, has the message of repentance ever been popular? Should we ever expect it to be popular? No. People that are dead in sin don't like being told to repent. We don't like being told to repent. Those of us who are born again. It doesn't doesn't even come easy to us. How often do we thank someone for rebuking us? The book of Proverbs says we should. But I don't. I get first get defensive right away. You point out some, some fault and some flaw. And none of us should be surprised that we have faults and flaws. I shouldn't be surprised I have faults and flaws. Ask Rebecca, right? Ask my wife. Uh, you know, but, but when someone points one out, hey, you know, wh- wh- who, who do you think you're talking to? I'm talking to a sinner, right? Um, we should be quick to hear the message. But repentance is not a popular message. It's never going to be one that sells books and sells out arenas and builds gigantic churches, it probably is never going to be the way. And so what are we to do if the message and the messengers are rejected? Well, here's what we shouldn't do. Change the message. It's not up to us. We don't get to pick the message. We don't get to decide what's, what's popular or what works. We don't change the message. But isn't that the temptation? Isn't that always the temptation for the church to change the message. And if people won't come or if they won't listen, what's the only reasonable thing for us to do? They won't dance, we change the tune. Right? We'll, we'll, go with what, we'll go with what works. When we do that, we elevate pragmatism over faithfulness. And if we do that, we're no longer servants of Christ at all. Christ can build his church, doesn't need our help to do it, frankly. His message must be our message. And so the church is to preach the gospel and leave the results to whom? God. Preach the gospel, leave the results to God. And trust the results to the God who alone, as 1 Corinthians 3 says, God alone gives the what? The growth or the increase. God decides. God makes the church grow as he sees fit. If if a place rejects the gospel, what does Jesus say? Shake the dust off your feet. Shake it off, right? I didn't make that the title of the sermon. but Leave leave it to God's just judgment. It's it's not up to you or them. It's up to God. In the parallel account in Matthew's gospel, it's also in some manuscripts of the text of Mark as well. Jesus says this, Matthew 10, 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Think about that for just a minute. Let me read that again. Matthew 10, 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What town? The town that says to the apostles, no thanks. No pitchforks, no torches, just no thanks. Go on, beat it. Hit hit the road. Don't come back, right? How wicked were Sodom and Gomorrah? There's another sermon, right? How how wicked were Sodom and Gomorrah? The Lord, what did he do for their sin? Rain down, quote, sulfur and fire from heaven. 
and destroyed those cities. Lot's wife got killed just by turning around and looking back at it. Turned to ash, she was turned to a pillar of salt, all because of their wickedness and immorality that came up before the Lord. It's, it's one of those texts that kind of sends shivers down your spine when you read it, if you, if, you, if you think about it much. The destruction that God rained down on that place. Remember, remember Abraham tried to intercede? Again, another sermon, another time. But um, What is Jesus saying about, in his comparison here? He's saying the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah that was worthy of fire raining down from heaven pales in comparison to those who reject the full revelation of the gospel of grace in Christ today. That's, we don't think, I don't think that way. Probably none of us really think that way on our own. The wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah pales, according to Christ, pales in comparison to those who simply reject the gospel. That's a mind-bending thought. How utterly wicked is the sin of unbelief really? That's how wicked. That's how wicked it is. How wicked is it to spurn and reject the Son of God who came to die in the place of sinners so they might have life? How wicked is that? Let no one who rejects Christ kid themselves into thinking that, well, they're basically good moral people, that they're basically a good moral person. Those so-called good moral people who reject Christ, if they stay in their unrepentance, and sin will suffer a fate worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what Christ says there in that verse. And it's literally true. There's no doubt about it. When you read the book of Revelation, what does it describe? Something worse than sulfur and fire raining down from heaven. Jesus isn't kidding. He's not, not mincing words. He's not exaggerating in any way. May the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to die so that sinners might live such as us, may he grant that you and I and his church would be faithful to cling to his method and his message in ministry and leave the results to him that God might grant the increase. And may he, by his mercy and grace, grant you and I to see the blessing of him building his church, of him building it, his church, to the glory of his great name. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it has so much to say about how you would have us to think and believe and to live and to worship and to witness and to work, that you give us ample instructions about all kinds of things, not the least of which is the work of your church, the work of ministry of making disciples, and even tells us the way, the way to life, repentance and faith in Christ. We ask even now that if there's anyone here that does not yet know you, that considers themselves a good moral person but has yet rejected coming to Christ by faith, that you and your mercy would do the one thing that only you can do, that we cannot do, that you would grant repentance, that you would turn, uh, turn such a one uh, from their sin and unbelief and turn them to you by faith in your Son, that they might have life. We thank you that you tell us in Ezekiel that you delight, not in the death of the wicked, but that they might turn from their ways and live. Thank you that you delight to save sinners such as us. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.